Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Hey, I wanted to look at a couple of the first two verses of the last song that we just sang for just a second as we get started. So we sang this song, and one of the reasons we sang it... Is it not working? Go to the first two verses. One of the reasons we sang it is, what I hope happens in RUF, both here when you spend time with the interns in our small groups, and what you should be doing anytime you enter into a spiritual, religious conversation, place, space, whatever it is, is dealing with the most real things. And one of the reasons we sing this song and sing it often, and, I, and I've pointed it out a couple of times, we're singing through our death in this song. We're asking God to be with us in our death because the most real thing that everybody in this room is going to encounter is your death. All the things we fret about about tomorrow are midterms and how our hair looks and whether or not we have a job or where we are in the depth chart. Whatever it is, those are kind of real but not really. The most real thing that is coming for everyone is our death. And it says, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. And all the other helpers and all the other, will fail and all the other comforts flee. Everything you're working for in this life that you're longing for is helpless in death. And that comfort will flee in death. The next verse. Um, and this is beautiful. In our early youth, thou on my head, in our early youth, this smile. He was smiling on us even though we're rebellious and perverse in our idiotic youthfulness. That is all of us, myself included. God's love is consistent and covenantal. He's bound himself to me. And he doesn't leave us even though we leave him all the time. And on to the close, Lord, into our death, abideth me. I just want to look at those two verses, and then we'll start simply to say, our goal is to talk about the most real things. Because, frankly, the midterms are stressful, but that is not the most real thing you have to deal with. Uh, Boyfriends and girlfriends are incredibly stressful. That is not the most real thing you have to deal with. The most thing you have to do, the most real thing you have to deal with is your death. And so pray with me and then we'll look at the story of Samson because I think it helps us begin to deal with that. Father God, we thank you that you have spoken in this story that maybe many of us heard in childhood about a strong man. And I pray that as we consider it, that you would open our hearts up to your word and to your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us some true things about real things, because we need you to be with us. We need answers, so teach us, dear God. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I think we learn two big real things in this passage. And a way to begin to understand how we learn those two real things is, if you're like me, and maybe you're not, um, maybe you've had the experience where you walk past a large outdoor window, and you walk past that large outdoor window, and you don't want to admit it to anybody else. But you look at that window and you think, here's a chance to see if the CrossFit is working, right? And so you just glance in the window very nonchalantly because it doesn't want it to be too obvious to see, like, is the CrossFit working, right? As you walk by, you're just, it's an opportunity to see if everything's lining up and going well. And sometimes the CrossFit is working, sometimes it's not. But those big outdoor windows with a lot of light on function as a mirror. However, if you're like me, there might have been some occasions where you're checking out to see if the CrossFit was working. And you realize people behind the window were watching you look at yourself, seeing if the CrossFit was working. 
And um, I say that to simply say this. Glass cannot simultaneously be a mirror in a window. Right? We can see ourselves in it, and we can also see through it and see other things. That's exactly what Samson is. He's a mirror in a window. He teaches us some very real things about ourselves when we look at his character. But we are absolutely supposed to also look through him and see some other real things. And so those are our two points tonight. What do we learn about ourselves from Samson? How does he function as a mirror? Um, And how does he function as a window? How is he a mirror? Here's the the 30,000th view, right, of the Samson story. Maybe some of y'all are familiar with it, maybe not. And And I actually, in the sheet, I just skipped the four verses just so we could keep the, short, the story shorter. Um, and those four verses, the cycle is repeated of him telling her what the source of his power, it not being really the source, she tricks him, all that kind of stuff. But here's what happens. And see if it doesn't sound familiar if you've been coming to RUF this quarter. He sees something he loves that is not from God. Right? It's represented in this woman, Delilah. Her name means woman of the night. She's allied. She's affiliated with the Philistines. He sees something that's not from God and he wants it. Right? He knows that she's not what's best for him. He knows that. That giving himself to this woman is a bad idea. But here's the thing. He can handle it. Right? He is sure that he can manage it. He's got it. So he keeps her close. She attempts to betray him. Samson, what makes you so strong? Tie me up with seven bow strings, then I'm weak. She ties him up. She hides assassins in their house. Wakes him up in the middle of the night. Samson, the Philistines are on us. He breaks the bond, beats the assassins. Right? He's managed the situation pretty well. He's got this. Now he knows that she's after him. Right? But the sex is really good. So he's got it. He can manage this. Samson, what's the source of your strength? The next verses tell us, I don't think these are the ones that are in there. He says, well, if you bind me with ropes, does the same thing, same episode happens again. Samson, come on, what's really your strength? Well, if you actually tied up my hair, those are the verses that aren't here. Again, she ties his hair up, wakes him up in the middle of the night, he defeats the Philistines. You see the pattern, right? He knows that she's trouble. He wants her, so he manages her, Right? And at all moments, he feels like he's very in control of things. I know what I want. I know it's not necessarily right or what's best for me. But look, I've managed it, haven't I? I'm the one person that can control this. Until finally, he says, my hair is my strength. If you cut it off, I have no power. His hair is in accord with the Nazarite vow. This is from Numbers. Uh, There are certain people in Israel that would uh, keep their hair long as a sign that they are committed to the service of the Lord. She cuts his hair, and the power of God leaves him. And they finally conquer the great Samson, right? He was Israel's American sniper. He was William Wallace. He was Rambo. That's what he was. He had terrorized the Philistines. Um, just trying to be culturally relevant, right? He's, um... And the Philistines finally defeat him, right? In this case, the bad guys win. But what I hope you hear is I hope you hear something familiar in these verses and in this story. Chasing after things that he loves more than God, lulled into thinking, I can manage this, turned around after a while, right? After managing this small thing and managing it, really, managing it pretty successfully. And after a while, he turns around and can't find God anymore. You see, Israel's cycle 
right here in Samson's life, the judge's cycle. And we see ourselves right here in Samson's life, don't we? I've got this. I know what I want. It's not a big deal. I can still be a Christian and I can manage this. Right? And you're managing it. You're managing what you want. You're managing other allegiances in your heart because these things are really important to you. You're holding them uh, alongside of God and sometimes in place of God. And you got it. And then what happens, if it hasn't happened already, is weeks, months, but most likely years later, you turn around and you're like, where's God? You turn around and you realize, I can't shake this thing. This thing I manage now controls me. Money, approval, fear, anger, sex, whatever it is. It can be good things. Right? Samson is teaching us about our relationship with sin. It's teaching about what our sin does to us. And it teaches us at least four things. The first thing is that sin seduces us. By convincing us that we're the exception. I'm the exception. I can serve two masters, God and something else. Seduces us by convincing you that you're strong and you're capable enough to manage this. And the sin that actually has the most power over us is the sin that we are convinced that we can manage. That's the sin that has the most power over us. The sin that we are telling ourselves, this is not a big deal. The, the big nasty stuff that you're embarrassed by, that's egregiously shameful, you feel incredible guilt over, the sin that you hate, that you're like, wow, this is out of control, that's not the sin that's going to get you. You hate that sin, you run to Jesus with that sin. Your big nasty ones, my big nasty ones, those are not the ones that are going to get us. We fight those, we take those across, they're not the danger, it's the little ones that we're comfortable with that you're convinced you're the exception to, that you can manage. And Freshmen, you need to spend time with older people, older students, all of us with older people, and ask them, when did you turn around and realize God wasn't there anymore? You're going to find out it had way less to do with the night that they tried heroin. That's not the night they found out God wasn't with them. And it had way more to do with little tiny steps toward greed and little tiny steps toward porn, and little tiny steps toward ambition, and little tiny steps towards anger, and little tiny steps towards unforgiveness. Sin seduces us by convincing us that you're the exception and that you can manage this. We're seduced by it, weakened by it. Right? That's what happens to Samson next. Because whatever seduces us takes our strength. When we give ourselves to one thing, we lose our capacity to walk away from it. I've been, this sounds silly, but it's kind of true. I've been, I've been watching The Walking Dead recently because I had the flu and I had to figure out how to survive that. And zombies are driven by one hunger. And that's why they're weak and easy to manipulate. It's because they can't do anything but follow one hunger. That's actually pretty biblical imagery. That's pretty close to what Paul says when he says we are dead in our trespasses. Samson is weakened because he followed his appetite for this woman away from the Lord. And the further and further we walk away from the Lord, the more and more powerless we become to fight the appetites that seek our destruction. In a lot of ways, you can literally visually watch someone succumb to the marketing of our consumerist economy and worldview. Right? We just more and more look exactly like what our culture looks like, what our companies look like. Our appetites dominate us, and we're weakened, right? 
Sin seduces us and it weakens us and it blinds us. Samson's blinded. His eyes are gouged out. When he gets a hold of you, you can't see things the way they really are. You'll actually cease to, you'll, you'll cease to be able to see that sin is actually burrowing out your soul and burrowing out your heart underneath the surface. It's kind of like one of those huge sinkholes you'll hear about in the news every now and then when like an entire city block will fall in on a sinkhole. That hole has been burrowing out for years. On the surface, nice looking home, nice looking city block. For years, the foundation under it has been burrowing out, been weaving out, been getting torn out, and sin seeks to hollow you out and blind you to the process. This is dangerous. Great line from the usual suspects, the best trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Sin is trying to convince you it doesn't exist and it's not happening in your life and it's not hollowing it out. But y'all, we know we're getting hollowed out. Seduces us, it weakens us, it blinds us, and it enslaves us. Sin ultimately enslaves us. And slavery is being stuck, working really hard, and never getting freedom or rest. Does that sound familiar? Stuck working really, really hard and never getting freedom or rest. And I'm not going to belabor this one because we actually talked about it a couple times this quarter. All throughout Judges, when God saves his people, when he brings a judge and the judge delivers them, part of the judge's formula, it says, and God gave them rest. Rest is not just ceasing from activity in the Bible. It's not just not doing something. It's actually also enjoying God. Jesus is actually, in Hebrews, called the rest of God. He is the Sabbath rest of God. Rest is actually the central promise of the gospel. It's what God offers in Jesus. He offers you rest for your soul. Rest for your heart. In this country, four years ago, we were spending $42 billion a year on anxiety medication. One out of five adults being medicated for anxiety. That number is continually going up. And that doesn't even count entertainment and leisure and vacation dollars we're spending to medicate our anxiety. Why do you think that is? Here's why. Because what we love is taking our rest. It deprives us of rest. And we'd rather actually medicate the symptom than deal with the illness. So here's what's going to happen to the anxiety medication number in our country. It's going to keep going up. It's going to keep going up. Because we refuse to rest. Right? Because sin has us enslaved. Samson shows us ourselves. But he also shows us something more. And if you've been with us, you'll realize Samson is living out Israel's narrative. This is the story of Israel we've read seven times in Judges so far. Seduced, weakened, blinded, enslaved. Seduced, weakened, blinded, enslaved. He's personally walking through what's happened to Israel over and over again and what happens to us. But Samson's not just a mirror. His story progresses. He's also a window. We're intended to look through him. He's arrested. He's weak. He's blinded. He's broken. And he's mocked. He used to be the great enemy of the Philistines, this menace, this great warrior. Where do they take him now? Pay attention to where he ends up. They take him to the center of their power, to the center of their values, to the center of their culture, to the epicenter of what it was about the Philistines that actually made them the enemies of God and the oppressors of Israel. 
they take him to their temple and to the center of it, to the temple to Dagon. Now, what's the only way that they would ever take Samson into the temple Dagon? They would only take him as a captor. They would only take him if he was defeated. They would only take him if he was broken. And why is he a captor? Why is he defeated? Why is he broken? Because the Lord is no longer with him. Earlier in the Samson episodes, we read it last week. When the Lord is with him, he's unstoppable. Precisely because he's weak, that he's taken to the center of their powerful. And they're celebrating his defeat. He was powerful, now he's weak. And what happens next? He says, Lord, remember me. He's in the center of the temple. He says, Lord, remember me and give me strength. And he pushes the two central pillars. We actually have archaeology that reveals this architecture. is exactly what was happening then. There are these two central pillars that held up, that bore the weight for most of the temple. He pushes out the two central pillars, is what we remember from Sunday school. He defeats the false god Dagon. He defeats the Philistines, the oppressors of Israel, through his own death. His weakness and his death save Israel. Does that sound familiar? Can you see through Samson now? Can you see what the nature of salvation is? And really what God intends for you to see is to see what the nature of true love is. Samson's story is a window to look through and see Jesus and see that in Jesus, that Jesus is the embodiment of true love. That Jesus, the Son of God, right, miracle worker, fed 5,000, brought Lazarus back from the dead, healed people, calmed storms, forgave people, fed people, welcomed all kinds of people. What all of Jesus' ministry was, and what all of his life was, all of those little stories and those snippets, was him displaying the great power of God to oppose anything that breaks shalom. The enemies of shalom, of the world the way it was supposed to be. That was Jesus making things right again. That was Jesus going to battle with everything that is wrong. He's putting food in hungry people's stomach. He's bringing dead people back to life. He's making broken bodies work again. That is Jesus using God's power, His power, to fix the enemy of God and His people, which is sin and the fall. And He allows Himself to be arrested. And he allows himself to be flogged. And he allows himself to be stricken and smitten. This is what Isaiah 53 says about stricken and smitten and oppressed and afflicted and taken away by oppression and judgment in order to bring us peace. You see Jesus through Samson. Jesus quoted Psalm 22, which Samson totally fits in his narrative. What does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you left me? Jesus didn't simply die. He was cut off from God. Why? When he gets cut off from God, where does he go? He goes to sin's power center. He goes into death. Here's what you're intended to see for Samson. You're intended to see Jesus for this purpose. And this is really the main point tonight. So that you can understand the possibility of actually being loved. That's what this is about. God intends you to see Jesus through Samson so that you can understand the possibility of actually really being loved. Because are all the things that you're asking to fill the emptiness and to complete you and to wipe away the sorrow and the frustration and the shame, is it working? Is it working? Or is it making it worse? 
We're actually killing ourselves. We're actually enslaved to dreams. Stanford is a place of deep slavery. And how finicky are the things that we are wishing could love us back? Like, you can't ever seem to please them, can you? It doesn't, never, it doesn't ever seem to stick. Nothing's ever enough. And if you have to perform for them to get, you, to get them to love you, to justify you, to fill you, if you have to perform for them to get them to do that, is it actually love? No. It's conditional liking. That's the best we can get for all of our work in this world, for all of our making ourselves lovable and acceptable and exceptional. The best you can get is you can get conditionally liked. And let me tell you this, getting conditionally liked is the worst thing in the world. It's horrible. Here's what's horrible about it. You will lose it, but for a little while, you'll think it'll last forever. That's why it's so horrible. That's the tragedy of sin. It actually does the opposite of what God does. And in fact, we're so used to that dynamic. Sacrifice yourself in order to be conditionally liked and accepted. And if you fail to measure up, you're going to stand accused. We're so used to that dynamic, right? Give yourself over, give yourself over, give yourself over. Because this dream will save you. It'll fill you. It'll wash away the shame. It'll wash away the guilt. It'll make you feel right, right? We're so used to that dynamic that we assume that's the way God works too. We actually place that model onto Him. Failing to understand everything He's telling us. And so we, this is what actually ends up what's happening. We relate to Jesus, and, and in some ways Christians made me do this more than non-Christians. We relate to Jesus like he's the devil. We don't think that Jesus is the devil, but we relate to him like he's the devil. This is what I mean. You know what Satan is called in Revelation 12? He's called the accuser of God's people. The one who's going to take your life's scorecard and weigh the pluses and the minuses of your life and make a case against you. That's the devil. That's what he does. And that's what we all think God wants to do. And it's the exact opposite. You know what Jesus is called in 1 John 2, 1? John says this, If we do have sin, which we have a ton, we have not an accuser, but we have this thing called an advocate. This person called an advocate who is Jesus the Christ. An advocate is someone who stands before the law and speaks on your behalf. That's the business Jesus is in. Have you ever wondered what you're going to say to yourself? Right? We, we sang Abide With Me About Our Death. At your death, have you wondered what you're going to say for yourself before God? Or are you going to say, I tried. I tried to be a good person. I tried to be a Christian. I tried to believe hard. I tried to go to church. Maybe... You didn't try to be a Christian, but you tried to be honest, and you tried to be fair, and you tried to be kind and forgiving and generous and hardworking. Is that how you envision your meeting with God? If so, you're treating Him like the devil. You're trying to make a case against His accusations you know He's going to bring against you. A Christian is someone who understands that Jesus is not an accuser. He's an advocate. And what that means is, here's how you're going to meet your Maker. You're not going to say anything. Jesus is going to put his hand in front of you and say, I got this. Do you know that? He speaks for you. He says, I've got this. You don't have to make a case. We treat Jesus like the accuser. He's upset with me, so I've got to put together a better moral religious resume. And you can do that one of two ways, right? Put together that better resume. Either by fearfully trying to be really super religious and moral... Or failing to do that, 
rewrite the moral law so you can make it achievable, right? Lower the test standards. And we do this because we think Jesus is our accuser, failing to see that he's our advocate. And his advocacy is not just that he speaks for us, actually. It's actually that he stands in for us. And that he gives his life as a substitute for ours. His life so that we can be free. Samson gave his life so that the Israelites would be free from the Philistines. He began to save Israel. Jesus gave his life that all of God's people would be free from our sin and everything that stands against us. And the death, which is a logical extension of sin, death is life apart from God. Jesus goes stands in story of Samson is the story of Jesus. It's the story of God's love for you. And there are two... There, it is vital for you to understand the importance of his suffering. That Samson suffers for Israel and that Jesus suffers for you. Here are at least two reasons why you need to understand the importance of Jesus' suffering. First of all, this, real love requires suffering. You know this. To love something that's broken, if you're going to love something or someone that's broken, that means you take on the brokenness of the beloved. Love, what it does is actually stops thinking about itself and its own dreams and how to protect itself and secure its dreams. Love actually gives things up for the beloved. Love, real love, always requires suffering and selflessness from the lover on behalf of the beloved. Jesus set aside glory and power and he endured the scorn and the shame of the cross and he carries our sin and our guilt to the grave because he loved us. His death is his love. His wish granting is not his love. We also think Jesus is a wish granter. He's not. That's from Aladdin. You got those, they got that myth confused with the Bible. His wish granting is not his love. His death is his love. And our freedom from sin, and our freedom from guilt, and our freedom from shame, all the things that we are constantly trying to scrub off but we can never remove, by His wounds we're healed. You actually know this about love intuitively. What does it mean for you to go and love someone socially isolated? For you to go love someone socially isolated, you have to take on some of their social isolation. Right? You have to go walk into their world and away from a comfortable social world. You begin to bear some of the brokenness of the situation. What does it mean to love someone who's poor? You have to give up money. That means you begin to take on portions of their poverty. Right? What does it mean to love someone who's sick? You go and spend time and energy lifting their spirits. You become exhausted. You begin to bear some of the costs of being sick. If God was to love a sinful, broken, and dying humanity which Christian or not, we all know that that's what we are. Maybe you don't like the word sin, but let's say this. We're not working right, okay? Go with me there. If God's going to love humanity that's not working right, that's pretty broken and is dying, wouldn't it make sense that if he loved us, that one thing that he would absolutely have to do is take on the sin and the brokenness and our death. Christianity is the only conception of God that says he loves us in this way. By coming, carrying the brokenness we could not handle. Real love requires suffering. There is no other love that exists that is real love that doesn't require suffering. Real love requires suffering. Everything else is just sentimentalism. Secondly, suffering validates love. 
And this is similar. Sometimes we think, couldn't God just love us and we don't have to have all this cross and this blood and this death business? Couldn't it just cost God nothing to love us? Think about that question. Couldn't it just cost God nothing to love us? Let me ask you this. Someone says, I love you. You're one of my best friends. I really care for you. And you call them in a time of need. And they say, or text, and they say, I can't right now. I've got a midterm. What do you conclude? They don't really care. Those words were hollow. Why do you conclude that? And you're right to conclude this. Because if they loved you, they would embrace the cost of doing so. And they didn't. Suffering proves the validity of the love. It actually assures us that love is genuine. We use words really cheaply today. And really heavy words and beautiful words like love have become paper thin. And they don't retain the weight of what they mean. So we say, I love you. And what we mean when we say, I love you, or I care for you, or you're my best friend, what we really mean is, you're kind of agreeable, and I'm generally kind of happy when you're nearby. That's really all we mean. Of like, oh, I'm not upset when you're around. Right? That's about what love means now. Maybe more than neutral. Like, not, not upset and not moderately happy, moderate to excessively happy. That's not love. You can do that with medication. You know that, right? You can just fix your moods that way. That's not love. That's just how you happen to feel. What do you think the Bible means when it says God is love? It doesn't mean that. When it says God so loved the world, when John 4.10 says this is real love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. How could you be sure that God loved you if it cost Him nothing to do so? You rightly conclude that your friends don't love you when they're unwilling to let love cost them. It's the very costliness of the suffering Christ that assures you of God's love. This is why the key to assurance is to look at the cross. That's the main thing. Look at the cross. Great love is validated by embracing great costs. Two short applications and one story about Tupac Shakur. How's that for a teaser? God, get to the Tupac. All right. Trying to be relevant. <laughs> Two applications. The first thing is you have a choice. You can choose one of two ways to live, and both ways require faith. You can choose one of two ways to live, and both require faith. First way is this. Make sacrifices in your life in the hope of being conditionally liked. Make sacrifices in your life in the hopes of being conditionally liked. The second option is this. Rest in Jesus, that his sacrifice is his offering of unconditional love for you. Both, both systems have an answer for sin and inadequacy, and both systems require faith. You've got to choose between the two. And if your plan is to work and to sacrifice and to suffer in hopes of being conditionally liked and approved of and accepted, well, you just stated your answer to sin and inadequacy. It's your ability to work hard enough. Good luck. It takes tremendous faith, doesn't it, to live by that system. Faith in yourself, right? I believe I can do it. I can manage this life. I can get there. That takes a tremendous amount of faith, doesn't it? And if that's your choice, prepare for a very successful life of bondage and anxiety. You will probably win a lot in whatever realm you're competing and aiming for. Y'all are Stanford students. Y'all are going to be great at whatever you do, right? If you put in 70% effort, you're still going to beat the rest of us. That's what I would recommend doing, by the way. 
Just put in 70% and enjoy the victories. But not like in a theological sense. Anyways. If that's your thing, I'm going to believe in myself to get everything right so I can be conditionally liked, approved, and accepted. You'll be successful in life of the terrible. And I think you already know what that feels like. I think we've all experienced that to a large degree already. And here's the heads up. Here's an annoying thing older people say. I'm not that old. I'm just older at this point. I'm 36. Life just gets harder. This is the easiest time in your life to work hard to be successful and achieve your dreams. Do you know that? Life gets harder and the stakes get higher. And life gets more judgmental and less forgiving. So if that's your plan, it's going to be rough. That's just Siri saying amen, right? <laughs> this, is your, this is the easiest time in your life to appease those guys. This is actually the easiest time, just so you know. If you're freaking out, you should be. This is easy. Okay? It gets harder. Here's the other choice. If your plan is to rest in the sacrificial love of Jesus, that you don't have to qualify yourself for his love, he loves you, The answer to sin and inadequacy is his substitutionary love, but he transfers the credit of our sin to himself, and he bears the consequences on the cross. Here's what it means. There is no reason you should ever fear guilt ever again. You should never fear the sin or the power of death ever again. This also requires faith, though. Faith in Jesus instead of in yourself. Both systems require faith. You've got to choose between those two. Second, shorter application. This is a simple act. One thing to do. Or one thing to do. Sim- Samson's weakness is actually what brings him into the center of Philistine power. And it's Jesus' weakness that brings him into the center of sin's power, which is death. Sometimes I think we've got to stop thinking big, complex, powerful thoughts about God. And we need to remember that he became small and simple and weak. Sometimes I actually think our big, powerful, complex theological thoughts about God, which I love, I actually think they're blocking His access to the center of us. And you may need to just stop and think simple, small thoughts about God. And you may find like Samson weakness got him behind enemy lines that small, simple thoughts about God can get behind all our defenses, all our defenses and get to the center of us. This past weekend, um, I was in Memphis with all the REF campus ministers from the West Coast, and we were sharing at this church and with several people that support RUF about things going on here. And the Cal Berkeley campus minister, who's a really good friend of mine, Brent Webster, taught the 10-year-old Sunday school, right? Great support base. I'm sure he's like, whatever. Got nothing. But sharing with the 10-year-old, Right? And he had him, he said, how many of you have any friends that aren't Christians? Memphis, Tennessee, most of these kids are not Christian private schools. He said, two kids out of 30 raise their hand. How many of you have any friends that aren't Christians? Two kids knew non-Christians in the room. And Brent said, my son is 12 and we live in Oakland. And he doesn't have one friend at school who knows Jesus. He's just giving these kids context. And he's just telling them, the reason we came to California was to tell people about Jesus. And then he asked them this, 
If all of your friends, all of your friends didn't know Jesus, what's the first thing that you would tell them? You kind of need to know Brent. Said a little boy raised his hand and he just said that he is good. And Brent just lost it. And then another little girl raises her hand and said that he loves them. The next kid raised their hand and said that he died for them. Listen, if you don't know what to do with a moderately complex sermon about a weird ancient Near Eastern theocratic battle against sin and oppression, that's okay. This is weird. Okay? If you don't know what to do with that, meditate on three small thoughts. Jesus is good. He loves you. And he died for you. And if you begin to understand the love of God, you can't be the same person ever again. Here's where Tupac comes in. I know y'all weren't listening. You're just waiting for Tupac. Not great transitions tonight, but... A few years ago, ESPN aired a 30 for 30. I'm sure y'all are familiar with these. And they've aired one about the night that Tupac Shakur was killed. It was outside of a Mike Tyson fight, a famous boxer from the early 90s. And in the, doc- in the documentary, they interviewed a lot of people that knew Tupac Shakur in his life. And uh, Maya Angelou, the great late poet um, of our age, tells this story about when she met him for the first time. And this is what she said. It was on the set of a movie called Poetic Justice... And she said that she saw two men fighting and yelling at each other, just spewing vulgarity and about to come to blows. And here's what she said. This elderly black woman stepped in between these two men, having no idea who they were. And she, she, she stepped into Tupac's face and said, Sir, may I speak to you? And she said, he cursed at her and said, I wouldn't. And she said, I understand, but let me speak to you. He said he got it all up in her face. Said if these, and she said, "I see that. I see that." Just let me speak to you for a moment. And this is what she said to him. She said, "When was the last one? When was the last time someone told you it was all for you? That we lived three hundred years on the edge of a dime so that you could live? Did you know? These are her words. That we stood on slave ship decks." And we stood on auction blocks and we were hosed down like dogs for you so that you could live. And she said his entire demeanor changed and he started weeping. And she didn't have anything and she just started wiping his tears with him. This is why. Because when you understand that something great and costly has been done for you, you know you can't continue being the same person. (coughs) Love doesn't leave you alone. When you understand real love, you get that being loved and actually imparts a new calling on your life. A calling to be a different kind of person and a new kind of person. Not in order to get love. That's why you were living up until this point. But because you are loved. Samson is the story of Jesus. And Jesus is the story of God saying, It was all for you. So that you could live. Let's pray.